This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It was about a month later that I got uh, official notice from the parole commission that you're going to be paroled. I mean, I was elated. Here I am going home. I'm getting out of prison. And I thought I was never going to get out of prison. So of course I'm happy. Tickled pink. I got about ten or $11,000 cash in my account, so I'm not leaving prison broke like most prisoners do. I was told by the case manager that my release date would be January 27th, 2010. At approximately 1 p.m. on that day, I walked out the front door. And I'll be honestly frank with you, I felt like doing a jig dance, jumping up and down and dancing a little bit and so forth. All right, happy, happy days, wow. But I didn't do that because I didn't want people to think that this guy's uh, screwy Louie, and uh, he's going to be right back. Look at him, getting out of prison, acting like a screwball right away. I didn't do that. I just walked out the door, and the penitentiary had a, uh, an inmate truck driver there to take me to the bus station. In 2010, 38 years after hijacking a commercial airplane and leading federal authorities on a five-day manhunt across the Midwest, Martin McNally had finally been paroled from prison. Standing in a bus station in Central California, Mac asked himself the same existential question that would occur to anyone who had just spent the majority of their life in prison. What next? I'm Danny Wisentowski, and this is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. In our final episode, Mac is released from prison and attempts to start over in a modern world. For the majority of us who have never had to experience it, Parole is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Think of it as a system of supervised release, which allows offenders to serve their time outside prison while still under the system's thumb. Mac was technically serving his life sentence for air piracy. And before he could leave prison, he had to submit a resettlement plan for approval by the federal parole authorities. I wanted to go to Tennessee, where a good friend of mine ran a business in telemarketing. And I had a lot of girls that I wanted to see, a lot of nice girls. That parole plan was denied, checked out by the Tennessee parole authorities, and they said, it ain't going to happen. You aren't coming to Tennessee. So then I made another parole plan to come to St. Louis because this is where I was sentenced. 
That was approved. Of course, in true Martin McNally fashion, he found a way to bend the rules. Instead of a direct bus to St. Louis, he decided to take an unplanned day trip, a little tourism to break up the journey. I planned to go uh, on the bus to Las Vegas, stay in Las Vegas for 24 hours. I think that would have been extraordinarily exhilarating, coming right out of prison. I wanted to party in Sin City. I made it to Vegas, and uh, I walked around for an hour before the bus had to take off. I bought some cigarettes, noticed the price, and uh, then I bought some candy. And the candy cost, uh, I think, a dollar. Years ago, this candy cost about 10 cents. And I told the clerk, I said, this price has uh, risen in the last couple of decades. Got back on the bus, and we were about 60 miles from St. Louis. I had the phone number of the uh, halfway house. I asked one of the dudes, would this cell phone work if we made a phone call on this thing? Give him, give him the numbers? He said, sure. So he handed me the cell phone. I looked at this thing. It was a flip phone. I told him, I can't make a phone call on this. I can't use this. Could you make the phone call for me? He said, sure. So he dialed in the numbers and everything. I made the call, and I connected with the halfway house. And I told him who I am, and I'm, I'm coming in. I said, I'm going 60 miles an hour. This is absolutely unbelievable talking to you from a bus. Uh, I can't believe this technology that we have nowadays. That was absolutely startling and stunning to see how things have changed since 1972 to uh, 2010. In his first 24 hours of freedom, Mac's senses were overwhelmed by both awe and alienation. Remember, Mac entered prison in 1972, and while he struggled just to survive, he was missing everything else in the world. And the totality of that loss was so much more than just candy price inflation or smartphones. It's an overwhelming experience, recognizing the world that's passed you by. I survived 37 years in the belly of the beast. You talk about violence, I've seen it. I've taken uh, bone crushers to my uh, forehead here. I've taken a bone crusher across my uh, cheek here. I'm missing a little bit of my skull, but I survived. It was uh, very traumatic. I really haven't, I haven't left prison. I'm still in prison. I think about it all the time, and uh, I have dreams. Is it uh, PTSD or something like that? I don't know. But for uh, somebody who's been through this, a lot don't survive. The combination of being a stranger in a strange land and the constant fear and stigma surrounding criminal convictions means many newly released parolees find themselves in a vulnerable position. If they lack a legitimate support system, their options shrink. Some turn back to the careers that landed them in prison. Mac had always been his own support system, and he, of course, already had a scheme in mind. So I was in the halfway house. The uh, federal PO came in there. 
He asked me what I was gonna do, and I told him I planned to uh, start some businesses, and uh, I'm gonna do well. Well, my real plan was to stay here for about 30 days, not very long, and uh, take off on the lamb. I had intentions of robbing banks. I know how to open up bank vaults. I won't tell you how, but it wouldn't be the uh, snatch and grab two or $3,000 on a bank job. It'd be taking everything in the vault, taking managers hostage and families hostage and so forth. That was my intention now. I was gonna come here to St. Louis and be gone. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Whether Mac was truly considering a bank robbing spree at the age of 66, no one can say, not even Mac. He never got the chance to set the scheme in motion because within those first 30 days of freedom, a new path presented itself. If you think of life as a puzzle and a person goes into prison as a piece of puzzle, then they go into prison and hopefully they get programming and they get some form of rehabilitation and that puzzle piece shifts, they change. That's Heidi Moore, the former director of St. Vincent de Paul's Rent-to-Release Program, a St. Louis organization that works with ex-convicts. And then we come back out and we try sticking them back into the puzzle that they came from, and they don't always fit. So they either have to go back to their old behaviors and patterns to fit into their society or the family structure that they left from, or they have to find somewhere else where that new piece fits. Now imagine being in prison that entire time and you come out and all of a sudden you're looking at milk. There's almond milk, coconut milk, soy milk, there's store brand milk, there's dairy milks. I mean, there's all these selections for milk. They're on overload. They don't know how to make any decisions like that. Some of them went from having their mom take care of them to a spouse take care of them to the prison taking care of them. And then they didn't understand about basics like cleaning the house or paying bills, putting up deposits for electricity, 
just basic items that most of us take for granted or perhaps we either learned through the course of life or our family taught us, not all of them had that luxury. A few weeks after Mac arrived at the halfway house in St. Louis, Heidi was there for a meeting. I was at Dismas House, which is a federal halfway house here in St. Louis, Missouri. And while I was there, the director of Dismas House, Anthony, he goes, you like those long-term offender guys, right? That's who you work with? And I'm like, yeah, those are great. Like, the longer they've done in prison, the better it is for us. He said, well, I've got a guy and he hijacked a couple of airplanes. And he did 36 years, a lot of it in administrative segregation. And I was like, great, I'll take him. So Anthony and I set up the interview and Martin came down to our office. With Heidi's help, Mac moved into his own apartment after just 90 days in the halfway house. While he was far from her most difficult client, Mac did have numerous quirks that were more a source of entertainment than concern. I wasn't worried about him going out and getting drunk and doing anything. So it was keeping him occupied with his time in a way that wasn't going to get him into trouble. Like not stirring the pot to instigate things with the feds was constantly what we were trying to oversee. And he not only would CC me on almost every email, he would CC his Fed PO on every email for years. And he was always falling I shouldn't say falling, but he was always participating in the scams, the internet scams, you know, the Nigerian prince or whatever those scams that all of us knew about or had learned about. Martin was frequently sending money to banks in London. While Mac was always trying to make a quick buck by mostly legitimate means, he was also openly aware of the struggles others experienced in the world around him. Some of the guys would help us set up apartments. So Martin would volunteer and help us do some of that. He started volunteering at a food pantry, although he wasn't necessarily formally educated with advanced college degrees. I mean, he knew how to read a book, he knows how to research, and he was comfortable doing that on his own. The next year consisted of Mac meeting with his parole officer and riding the bus around St. Louis to his weekly meetings with Heidi and other ex-cons. And participating in a variety of vaguely legal and vintage Mac McNally money-making schemes. There was some magazine. He would sell back to inmates, and he would get a slice of the cost. I'm pretty sure he was spoken to by his PO more than once about this, that he wasn't supposed to be selling items to men in prison and making money off of them. He would have just a bunch of watches. And if some man had just come home from prison that day, Martin would give him a free watch. Now that's from me. Everyone else has got to pay. If you all want a watch, you better pay up. But you can have one for free, singing after group. He was always a riot. Max settled in. Over the next four years, he enjoyed something he'd never had before, an anonymous, law-abiding life. And this is where I entered the story, in June of 2014. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't stay as long as I hope. That's I quite stay. all right. You can stay 10 minutes or an hour or whatever. Our first interview on that summer afternoon took place in the Tower Grove East apartment Heidi Moore had originally placed him in, a few blocks from a large city park and a stretch of trendy restaurants and bars that he never visited. Mac, instead, kept boxes of Milwaukee's best tall boys stacked like artillery shells in his small kitchen. During this interview, 
he sat on a threadbare, busted couch opposite a 90s-era tube TV and a desktop computer. His two black-and-white cats, Spot and Speck, whom he adores, are virtually identical, and they entered and exited through the open front door at their leisure. You've got questions. What would you like to know? We might as well start from the beginning, if, if you're all right with that. Um, Absolutely, of course. Over the next five years, I would explore much of the story you just heard through interviews with Mac and the other sources who have supporting roles in this saga. Most notably, in the summer of 2016, I would be invited by Mac's parole officers to join them for an unannounced visit. Hey, Mac. That's fantastic. Danny, hey. good to see you, dude. Good to see you. Wanted him to uh, document the good news I'm about to give you. Really? You're off parole. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm disappointed. Okay, listen. Congratulations. No, it's a... It's disappointed. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy moment. What we need, what we need to do is have you come over here at least once a month. I need to see you. I knew you were going to say that. You did? I, I like it, especially when the female POs come over here. Yeah, it's very rarely that I have people coming into my house, I'm telling you. I'm not, I'm not changing my phone number. You'll still have my phone number. Okay. This is, uh, this is my appeal. You can take that with you. That's the appeal that I was going to submit. <laughs> yeah. I didn't expect this. Hey, I did not expect this, but I certainly appreciate this. Now, I can go any place in the country. I chronicled this moment and much of Mac's wildlife in a cover story I wrote for St. Louis's alt-weekly, The Riverfront Times, in the winter of 2017. But even today, I have nagging questions. The first is the one that has been asked since Mac hijacked Flight 119 in late June of 1972. Why did he do it? Why did he choose this insane criminal act rather than living the straight life? Everyone we interviewed for this epic tale who knew Martin McNally and his story have their own theories. He was crazy. He was greedy. He wanted thrills in the spotlight. He was a dumb kid who made a terrible mistake. I have my own theory. Here it goes. Go back to the beginning. Little Marty McNally a misbehaving kid in the early 1950s suburbia of Detroit, lost for attention among his many siblings. It was here that he first decided to make up his own rules. Faced with his father's discipline, little Marty lit things on fire, quit high school, and joined the Navy. And there, still Mac made his own rules and disobeyed orders. The truth is, chaos wasn't an aberration in Mac's life, but its theme Instead of a quiet life in his father's shoe shop, McNally chose to mint fake pocket change and scam filling stations. Martin McNally was a rebel just because. Then he took to the skies, using chaos to bend the world to his will. In the shape of that chaos and in its aftermath, Martin McNally didn't just find control. He unearthed talents and courage and perseverance. It was in chaos and in crime where he found himself. It's just too bad that that self-discovery 
cost him nearly 40 years in prison. But that's all armchair psychoanalysis. Every time I've asked Mac why he did it, his response has always been the same. Money. Then there was the other question that always lingered. After prison, why did Mac return to St. Louis? Aside from his crimes, Mac had no connections in the city, no family, no friends. When asked in the past, Mac always gave some version of the following answer. I told my case manager, I said, I'm not going back to Detroit. I don't have anything to do with my family. And uh, since I was sentenced in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, that's where I'm going to go. Just returning to the scene of the crime because I don't know anybody in St. Louis. Don't know anybody at all. Don't know the city, don't know the area. And uh, it didn't know nothing at all about this place. But he did settle on St. Louis. So why return to the scene of the crime, as Mac put it? And why stay there for nearly a decade? The simple answer, Mac had nowhere to go. He'd severed himself from his family and had no connections on the outside. So the federal government simply shipped him back to the original site of his greatest criminal acts. But the motivations of Martin McNally are never simple. And he never seemed to stop thinking one move ahead. It's why he didn't give up after David Hanley drove a Cadillac into his plane in 1972, or why, after watching his fortune disappear into the clouds, he didn't unclasp his parachute and end the whole saga then and there. In the spring of 2019, on an otherwise insignificant Tuesday morning, Mac asks my producers to pick him up at his place. He wants to show us something. When, when was the first time that you were here? Oh, God, I think uh, 2010, sometime in 2010. Mac directs us down I-55, south of the city, along the Mississippi River. It's a perfect, sunny, late April day, without a cloud in the crystalline blue sky. Mac has us open all the windows in the car as we exit the highway, allowing the wind to blow through his chin-length silver hair tucked ironically beneath a black baseball cap emblazoned with the white stitched letters simply reading FBI on the front. It's down about uh, three quarters of a mile, I believe, and then we'll turn right. Finally, we come to the austere white column and red brick entrance to Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery, where over 188,000 veterans have been laid to rest. Is the entryway into the uh, cemetery. We drive in, passing a gleaming black hearse and a line of cars behind it, idling before a midday funeral. Matt directs us to one of the many gradually sloping grassy knolls, dotted with the evenly spaced white marble headstones, and instructs us to park along the curb. Mac leads the way, walking through the ankle-high grass along a row of graves, marked with names and dates spanning the past 150 years. And finally, he stops, facing one headstone in particular, head bowed. The name chiseled into the white marble. Barbara Oswald, the mother of five who had died trying to free a group of prisoners so many years ago.
It was shortly after I arrived here, I knew that uh, Barbara was interned here because when she was killed, um, this cemetery told her family that they don't want her body buried here. And her children, her five children, told this, these people here that she qualifies for burial in the military cemetery. She was uh, honorably serving in the uh, military. And this is where it's going to be. She wanted to be buried here. So she's buried here. It's definitely one, one event that I seriously regret. Barbara had five children, and we destroyed her family. We drove her to her death. Barbara, I know you can hear me wherever you're at, and I'm really sorry that this happened. Mac himself never met the family he helped destroy. It was Garrett Trapnell who manipulated Barbara, and she likely had no idea who Mac was, only that he would be with her beloved in the prison yard. But for years after his release, Mac had been quietly visiting Barbara Oswald's grave. Heidi Moore was one of the few people who knew Mac did this. He goes and visits her grave at the VA cemetery and he has ever since he got out, often alone. I think that that is his way of expressing remorse for what happened to her and her family. He was very self-centered and has acknowledged that he wasn't thinking beyond just being able to get out of prison. I believe that him going and visiting with her is his way of trying to find some peace. Mac may not have ever talked to Barbara or Robin Oswald, but he knew Trapnell was a liar and a user, and he never tried to stop him. Trapnell was willing to throw away the life of a 17-year-old girl who could have easily been shot by FBI snipers. And Mac had watched, advised, and stood ready to accept the benefits of Trapnell's abuse. So, even if Mac didn't move to St. Louis with the intention of making spiritual amends, I'd like to think that, at the very least, it's better late than never. When I do kick off, I will be put in a coffin and within a short period of time, put in a, the ground. And I don't want an autopsy. I don't want my body cut up and I don't want my body embalmed, all of that stuff. I just want my body dropped over there at the uh, military cemetery. I hate to even shed a tear over some of this stuff because that's what I don't want to do. I'd rather have a smile, a good smile. And that's all I can say. I'm not happy, but a good smile anyway. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Martin McNally's life had followed a consistent pattern of day-to-day monotony, punctuated by short stretches of intense chaos and change. And 2019 followed a similar pattern. He spent much of his days watching true crime documentaries that often featured his former prison buddies and feeding his cats. Then, it was punctuated by a new kind of chaos. Cataracts had begun to cloud both of his baby blue eyes And by the time we take our trip to Barbara Oswald's grave, Mac is half blind. A few months later, his health would take another hit. As the summer heat settled on St. Louis, Mac would have what doctors at the local VA medical center would diagnose as a minor stroke. Then, as fall began, the landlord of Mac's apartment building, where Mac had lived for the vast majority of his life since getting out of prison, informed him the dilapidated building had been sold, and Mac would have to move out by the end of the month. All of this would be incredibly stressful for anyone of any age, but for a 75-year-old loner who suddenly found himself going blind and about to be homeless, it meant once again finding a way to survive. Mac began by reaching out to his family in Detroit, who had been mutually written off decades before, back when he assumed he was destined to die in prison. His youngest sister, Claire, answered his call, giving Mac a rental property that she owned to live in. One of the very first things I'm gonna do is take the uh, king-size bed and I'll probably set it on the floor and go to sleep, send Claire on her way and go to sleep. She arrives the final weekend of October in a cargo van towing a trailer to help Mac move all his worldly possessions, including Spot and Speck, on the 500-plus mile journey back to Detroit. Is it a back spring good or? We could leave it and I can buy a new one. No, 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 if it's, I, mean, I have room. I'll take it. I think I'm gonna leave all this food though. Strawberries, those are about five years old. That's pretty much beer in there. I think we should leave it. One evening, on Mac's final weekend in St. Louis, he decides to throw a going-away party at perhaps the perfect place for an ex-skyjacker leaving town for good. I am excited about the night tonight. I'm very excited. I'm encouraged uh, that those people would like to see me. Mac chooses D.B. Cooper's Safe House, a bro-y Princeton Heights sports bar with excellent wings and dollar beers, named after the very man who inspired Mac to hijack a plane in the first place. Canned beers cost $1.25, so I'm gonna give them $125 and tell them to give out uh, 100 cans to uh, the patrons there. For his own reasons on the occasion, Mac has ordered a $100 sheet of $1 bills fresh from the mint, which he cuts and signs, technically against the law, and then presents to the somewhat confused bar manager 
who is eventually flattered by the gesture. Do you think it would be better to have the uh, bartender announce it? It's up to you. Yeah, let's have the bartender announce it. D.B. Cooper. Almost D.B. Cooper. Almost. Heidi Moore and a number of fellow ex-cons show up to see Mac off. Heidi! I know. Oh my God, it's good to see you. Do you remember me from Stay Out, the blind guy broke into the... Yes, I remember you. Yes, I did. Same style playing and everything? 727, yes. I want to take a picture with you, is that okay? You can do that, Thank yes. You so it's amazing. Good to meet you, dude. Glad you're free. Yes. You go to Michigan, you stay at my house, we can swim, we can fish, we can water ski. That actually happened. I didn't know about that. Because you never asked. I know. It's a good night. Everyone seems genuinely sad to see Mac go, especially Heidi Moore. Martin's my buddy. I moved to St. Louis in 2005, and I met Martin in 2010. So he's been a part of my St. Louis experience longer than I was in St. Louis without him. And I'm going to miss him, even though I didn't see him as often as I used to. I have no doubt anything within his power, if I needed it, he would do it for me. And not just me, anyone that I would vouch for or if we needed something done. He's such a unique person and he has a great heart that he doesn't want anyone to know about. He cares about the underdog when he doesn't want people to know he cares about the underdog. And he looks out for people in a way that will often be underestimated. And there's no doubt in my mind he did that for people in prison too, even if he will never speak about it. My buddy, that's the only way I know how to really describe it. And I'll miss him when he's gone, back to Michigan. I have a feeling I'll probably never see him again after he's gone. Okay, let's go. Mack will return to Detroit, coming full circle to who he was before being arrested outside his home there 47 years earlier. Months will pass. We'll get a couple updates in that time of Mack reconnecting with some members of his family, as well as meeting new ones who were born and grew up while he was away in prison. Mack will have cataract surgery on both eyes, restoring his vision entirely in the first weeks of the new year. A month or so later, he has fully recovered. We visit him in Detroit and see a new man with a sharp haircut living in a small house with a large backyard in a quiet neighborhood of Wyandotte, a few miles from the home he grew up in. Okay, we're gonna be going in here and looking at my mansion. Got a very nice house here, and I think you're gonna enjoy it as much as I do. This is the living room, and I've got a very nice flat screen TV, heater, and Radio, 
That radio is from uh, 1950. My father used to have that in his uh, business. Got a nice leather couch, cost me 80 bucks. I'm gonna take you into my kitchen here. Got a very nice kitchen, some very expensive paperweights, glass, unbelievably expensive. I got my cup, Big Mac. That was prepared by a friend of mine who was doing life in prison for bank robbery. And I got this uh, coffee pot, 100 cup coffee pot. I drink about 200 cups of coffee every week. Okay, let's go outside. I wanna show you the backyard. This is a big yard. Got these trees here. This summer, I'm gonna have a table here and I'm gonna have my grill. I'm gonna do a lot of cooking steaks out here. Bringing friends over, having a drink and enjoying the sunlight. A lot of sun in here. It's the perfect place for an old crook to live out the rest of his days, quietly reconnecting with his family, reflecting on the life he led, and letting this be the last next step he'll ever have to scheme for. But that's not Martin McNally's style. There's one thing in particular still on his list, flying on an airplane again. Of course, the last time Mac boarded a commercial airplane, he hijacked it and demanded half a million dollars. Would the airlines even sell him a ticket? It's not clear if he can actually fly. When I got out of prison in California, I told the uh, case manager that I needed to determine if I was on the no-fly list. Case manager wouldn't help me out. I got four aircraft piracy convictions uh, under my belt. There was no way that they were gonna let me on a plane, I figured. Quick side note about the no-fly list, it's kept highly confidential for obvious security reasons. The few people that are on it won't know it until they show up at the airport for a flight. And by then, the authorities will be able to ask the necessary questions, or worse. There was no way for Mac to know if he was on that list. Of course, there was only one way to find out. We're going to the uh, Detroit Metro Airport right now. I'm feeling a little bit nervous because uh, I haven't been on a plane in nearly 50 years. This is the first time, so I don't know how it's gonna be. They're gonna have, I'd imagine, tighter security than they did uh, back in 72. We head to the airport to buy a ticket, though Mac notices some changes by the time we leave the parking garage. It's called a people mover, Mac. Well, you can just keep walking forward. This is Michigan Secretary of State Johnson Benson. Reminding you that the beginning of October 1st, I'll be damned. Unbelievable. Despite the wide variety of airlines to choose from, Mac goes with the one he knows best, American. He picks a destination to visit, we won't reveal where, and we approach the desk to buy tickets. IDs, please. After a surprisingly tense few moments, our tickets are issued. So far, it seems Mac is free to fly the friendly skies, assuming we get through security, of course. 
So we just take this and give it to the other than some jovial questions from the TSA about his FBI hat, Mac cruises through security without incident, even jokingly asks about job opportunities once he is through. I can get a job here. 17 bucks an hour to start. Right, Are you looking for a uh, part-time? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm just a senior citizen trying to get a job. <laughs> Working for the airport. You like this right? This will get me on the plane. Just show it to the tourist. I'm gonna show it to her. We get up to the front. Scan you in. Probably walk right on. That's it. Yeah. We gotta wait for them to call our number though, because we're in a group. See the group? The group number on there? Yes, I saw it. Yeah, wait for that. We're a little farther down the line. Cue number six is welcome to Warren Okay, Danny, you ready to go? Yep. All right. Okay, let's go. I'm very nervous today. Very nervous. Doing good so far. All right, I hope so. We were now on a commercial airplane with a man who, unbeknownst to everyone else on board, had hijacked two planes in as many hours evaded a manhunt, and nearly escaped the most secure prison in America. Once aboard, he already has demands, namely, about the size of the plane itself. I wanted, I wanted a jumbo 747. Well, you can only ask for your own kind of plane one time. Are you making fun of my plane? This is a nice plane. I'd like to marry you. You're <laughs> Oh my God, this is small. I'm one of the bigger jumbo. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Erica and I will be assisting you in the cabin today along with Wendy. Um, it's important to us. Please pause for a moment and direct your attention to the front of the aircraft. Luggage and personal articles should be stowed either overhead or underneath the seat in front of you. To prepare for departure, please close your tray table, place your seat in the original upright position and lower your headrest. Soon, we are taxiing away from the airport towards the runway. It has all gone smoothly until this point. And then, we stop. And folks from Flight Tech, Captain speaking, due to the weather, they are starting to implement some delays. We don't have a major delay, but uh, they don't have us uh, taking off for another 30 minutes. So we're gonna be parked here for the next uh, 20 years. So like we are gonna be ready to move in case they take that it's delay bad off. Us. So we do ask that everyone it's remain seated. Normal. If I ask to get off, would they let me uh, off? I do apologize for this, I appreciate your patience. They wouldn't let me off? <clears throat> If I asked to get off, they wouldn't let me off? <clears throat> Why not? We try to explain what little we know about FAA rules and regulations, but Mac doesn't seem to care. I'd be lying if I said those next 20 plus minutes stopped in a staging area between the runway and the airport didn't pass without some tedium. It occurred to me that we were in a similar place to where Mac's hijacked plane had been directed once he had taken control of it in June of 1972. Out of the jet's porthole windows, I watched every vehicle it cruised by outside, none of them presumably carrying hostages or ransom money or parachutes. After 15 minutes, I started thinking about law enforcement forming a perimeter around the plane, plotting to raid it and pull Mac and our crew off to be detained and questioned. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for your patience. We are cleared for takeoff. But nothing so dramatic happens, at least not to the majority of those on board the flight, who aren't aware one of their fellow passengers may be the most notorious living skyjacker in the world today, a living relic of the golden age of skyjacking. I think they're gonna make a turn and shoot up. And shoot up. For those of us who do know the whole incredible story of this old man in the FBI hat and Elvis sunglasses sitting at the back of the plane, there is something supremely satisfying about this moment. Get ready. Get ready to go. This is it. This is the good part. Put the brakes on, rattle up, release the brakes, and we're off. A small-time crook who took a shot at the big score and failed was banished to prison to die, only to survive and somehow make it out. Alright, Here we go. A legend from a legendary time, now flying again, free. All I can say is it wasn't worth it. Stupid. Bordering on insane. It's no excuse for it. None. Zero. Would I like to relive it? No way. No way. But if I did have to relive it, I wouldn't kill myself. I wouldn't. Because where there's life, there's hope. And everybody has to believe that there's hope. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morcom. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>